turn to First Samuel nine, actually eight. We're still in eight, verse eight. Now we left off last week on a great note. God's people, in a way that they hadn't done for probably over a hundred years, people of Israel saw the truth of their need to worship, not just the formality and their relics and all of going through the motions of their worship and service, but that they actually, they, they served an all-powerful God that they needed to humble themselves before. And that was where they needed to be. They went from, as judges described them, as a people that followed after their own thinking, their own heart, to a people that followed after God's heart. And that desired his thinking, which would, you know, be a, which is a nice precursor to eventually a king that would have a heart for God. And they repented and they humbled themselves. And not only that, but they repented and changed their ways. They got rid of all their idol worship. Remember, and the Philistines heard about them gathering together and said, well, we better, we better take care of them again. They've gotten a little boldness. So we better teach them a lesson again. But they didn't know that they were dealing with the people that had gotten right with God. And they had forgotten the lesson of what God recently done to them when they tried to subserviate his Ark of the Covenant. Um, and so God took things into his own hands. Of course, everything's in his hands. And he literally sent the Philistines into a panic and all the Israelites had to do. They're newly emboldened with their dedicated service and loyalty to their God. They took out the Philistines and had a great defeat. Wouldn't it be wonderful if things just stayed that way in the lives of God's people? That would be marvelous. And if we could just keep going with that, that'd be a wonderful narrative up until the point where King David becomes king and everybody is on board. Uh, unfortunately, that's not what happens. That's not the reality of our daily lives. We have ups and downs. We have times where we truly repent and we are ready to serve God in whatever way he would have us to do when we're excited about that. And that lasts for a while. And those decisions are tested. And sooner or later we fall. And we're going to see that tonight in 1 Samuel 8, verse 8. Um, but let's be clear, because as we get into verse 8, it's obvious that a lot of time have, has passed between that and when Israel has had this miraculous delivery and they've gotten right with God. And so, unfortunately, I, I would personally like to know a lot more about what happened during Samuel's leadership and what happened during this time when Israel had gotten right with God and they changed, went a different direction from the way they went in the time of the judges. But the narrative just kind of passes by all of that. If I had to hazard a guess, maybe it's just because God had blessed and brought so much peace and maybe some prosperity that there wasn't a whole lot to say. Up until the point where the people get comfortable again, they start looking around them and they start being um, less than satisfied, discontent. Again, isn't that the perennial problem with this group of people? Well, maybe that's the perennial problem with all of God's people. Things go well, God blesses, and then we get discontent. And so after a, a long time of God's blessing, and remember a time where it was described 
that the Philistines were weakened all throughout Samuel's reign. Now we're going to come to a point where we find out that isn't quite the case. They've been weakened. They have peace with enemies. But now, unfortunately, Israel in their heart turns a page and uh, God has to deal with them again. But yet we still see Samuel's testimony and Samuel is still the main focus in leadership right now. That's going to change very quickly. People are discontent with Samuel's leadership, but he's still leading. And even in the midst of rebellion, Samuel is a faithful testimony of what a leader should do when the people, God's people, rebel against him. So verse 8, and it came to pass when Samuel was old, so a long period of time has passed, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Seems like this um, form of leadership continues. Specifically, Samuel is continuing the the Levitic leadership. It goes from judges to now priests leading. Is everything okay? Oh, did I not say 1 Samuel 8, verse 8? Oh, isn't verse? Oh, all right. The way that I printed this out, it always drives me crazy. It puts the chapter number for the first verse. I don't know why it does that. I got to fix that. So it says 8 when it's 8, verse 1. Okay, thank you. Chapter 8, verse (sighs) 1. Crazy software. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Now everything seems good so far. Samuel, of course, is continuing the leadership. But we were reminded of something else that is a perennial problem with with humanity. And that is that we tend to parent without without God's grace and seeking God's grace in our lives, our parenting tends to represent what we've always grown up with and what we're used to. Now, that doesn't have to be the case. God, in his grace, can miraculously change two parents' lives, and even if they've grown up under a very difficult situation, he can change that and allow them to lead their family in a godly way. And Samuel is a godly man. We've seen this. Stellar testimony. But folks, at the same time, isn't it true that we know a lot of stellar, faithful people whose children just seem to, as we say, go off the reservation? They go another way. And so Sam, we find out here, most likely, that Samuel, in this way, tended to follow his own example. Who is his example growing up? Eli. So we have verse 3, and his sons walked not in his ways but turned aside after lucre or gain and took bribes and perverted judgment or justice. Not quite as bad as Hophni and Phinehas, but not very good. And so just even in this, a warning, a reminder for us, as godly, as faithful as as you are, as as hopefully that God allows us to be, that doesn't mean that's always going to transfer to our kids. And we have to constantly pray. In the end, whose responsibility is it? It's with the children. But there's probably a good possibility here that Samuel had some patterns that he had learned that were wrong patterns. And he kind of just let his sons go their own way. But overall, still, Samuel is a stellar example. And we'll see that. But in this regard, then, it gives the people of Israel cause to be discontent. 
And it is probably maybe the one, the only couple of marks on Samuel's stellar record that now the people can use to demand something new. Verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together. This will probably be the elders of the different tribes. Interesting note, these elders haven't been reported as getting together to talk to a leader since the time that's, that's mentioned in the book of Judges. So it's been a while. Um, they've been very satisfied with Samuel's leadership. God has been using him, but now these elders are discontent. And so the people send their leaders to talk to Samuel. They gathered themselves together and they came to Samuel under Ramah, which is where Samuel lived now, and said unto him, now, how would you respond to somebody who has faithfully led people for a long time, has done a great job? You would want to be respectful, right, in that. And you'd want to, even if you had problems or discontent, you would want to come in a respectful way. Unfortunately, that's not what Samuel gets in this. And I'm sure it was a grief to his heart, but they just lay it out on the line. And they said unto him, behold, you're old. You're old. And by the way, we don't like your sons either. <laughs> wow. That's a great way to start a conversation. Not very diplomatic. But your sons walk not in thy ways. Now, that was the one thing that they did have against Samuel that was true. And it shows us importance among leadership of the importance of having a blameless testimony because Satan is going to use anything that he can to discredit us sooner or later. That was it. They had no cause and obviously, it already shows their heart disposition. We have some really awful heart attitudes here. So since, we, since you're old and we don't like your sons, now we're demanding make or appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Samuel, we've been looking around. All these other nations have a king, and we have judges and priests, and we're tired of that. We want to be like everybody else. Now, ultimately, let's be clear here, precise. Remember, we looked at the chapter in Deuteronomy where it predicted that one day that Israel would have a king, right? And it said that they would look around and that they would maybe want a king like the other nations. And in, in Moses and Deuteronomy didn't necessarily say that was wrong. But it's obvious in this whole course of things that they're not going about this in the right way, that their heart attitude is not right. And we're going to see here in just a few minutes They've turned from idol worship, but they've really just transferred that. They've gotten rid of all their stone and wooden idols, and now their new idol is we need to have a political figure, a king. We've got to have that. They've really, in actuality, just replaced their idolatry with something new. Now they're idolatrous after a king. We have to have a king in their heart attitude. And as you can imagine, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. When people hurt you, by the way, and are mean and are unreasonable, aren't we tempted just to get our backs up and, or whatever we say and, and get angry and frustrated and shoot back? Samuel reminds us, no, first thing you do when people attack you, when they, frust when they hurt you, I'm sure Samuel was very hurt by this. You imagine, parents, somebody comes to you, and in this way, says something awful about your kids, whether it's true or not, you got to be very diplomatic a lot of times about how you do that. And Samuel was hurt. And yet he went to God first before anything else. And I'm sure he laid this out. God, this isn't fair. 
not only that, I mean, I know my, I know my sons haven't done well, but I've, I've been faithful and, and you have led us. It's not been my leadership. Ultimately, it's been your leadership and, and help me to deal with this. And he gets an answer that I don't think he was expecting. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto. He basically says, Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. I don't think that's what Samuel had in mind. <laughs> God, you need to deal with these people. I've been faithful. God comes back and says, do what they say, Samuel. Oh, that's not what he wanted to hear. But then God goes further. He says, don't be hurt. Don't be bothered. They've not ultimately rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And remember, folks, in leadership, and this is true for me and for our leaders and for those in authority, ultimately, when the people, if, if you are faithful to God and you are leading people in the right way, when people rebel against that, ultimately, it's not against you. We have to be careful in these things not to take it personally. That's easy to do. But ultimately, we're reminded here, it's against God. So let God handle it. And Samuel may have been confused. God, is this the right way to handle it? But thankfully, he, he um, submits. And God says, don't be personally offended. It's rejected me. And Samuel, really, this has been a pattern the whole time. Verse 8, this shouldn't be a surprise. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods. And it says here, so do they also unto thee. Well, what gods were they serving? The idea that they had to have a king over, and they wanted their own timing rather than God's timing. Again, I think that in God's timing, he had David prepared. And he, if the people would have waited, they wouldn't have had to go through what they had to go through under what happens next. Leave it a little mysterious there. But they didn't. And God says here, they're still being idolatrous. Now they're worshiping this idea of having a king, and it's against me. So don't be surprised. And this time, this is how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to give them, Samuel, what they want. Now, therefore, hearken unto or obey their voice. How be it? Don't just give in. Yet protest or warn solemnly unto them and show them the manner or the ways of the kings that shall reign over them. Let them know, Samuel, that you're not on board with this, that, that this is not my original plan for them. I'm not pleased with this. And you give them warning that they may not want what they think they want here. There's going to be all kinds of changes when they get a king. And you warn them. And, and God is being very gracious here. He could have just dealt with these people and their rebellion. They've rebelled against him for so long. But he says, give them a warning first, Samuel. Let them know what they're facing. And so Samuel does that. They're following their same old rebellious patterns. And folks, let's remind ourselves in the midst of all this too, that when we rebel against authorities that God has put in our lives, even if they're imperfect. Samuel, had, Samuel wasn't perfect. He had his faults, but he was a faithful servant. And when we rebel, and we may, we may be able to, um, I can't think of the word right now. We may justify, well, if this authority hadn't done this, and they didn't act this way, but when God makes it clear we're supposed to submit to that authority, we're ultimately rebelling against God. 
not that authority. So always keep that in mind. God's sovereign. He's given us the authorities that he's given us. And make sure that we are submitted to them unless they ask us to do something unbiblical. Then, of course, we follow God rather than men. So Samuel did exactly as he, his pattern was, verse, verse 10, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. He translates us, he gives us, and this would have been his common thing. This is what was expected out of Samuel, a faithful servant. He would talk to God and he would tell the people what God had to say. And he's doing this again. And he said this, this will be the manner or ways of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots, and he will appoint them captains or commanders over thousands and commanders over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and equipment or instruments of his chariots, the equipment of his chariots. Those were like the car mechanics for chariots back then, <laughs> so to speak. And basically, Samuel is saying, folks, if you want a king, there's going to be a whole new system. Things are going to change. And the king will take the best of your young men, and he will use them for his, basically, his war effort. And there's all kinds of things that he will need. He'll need commanders. He'll need them. Um, he'll need people, men that will provide food um, through the harvest to bring to the army. You won't have all of your food just to keep to yourself. You'll have to help feed the armies. Um, there'll be instruments of war. There'll be those that have to work on those chariots. All these things. You will not have the freedom that you used to have. The same things that Samuel is warning about here are the same things that we have to be under, under leadership today, even though we don't, we're not under a king, right? Um, and they had it better than what they knew. And he continues. Here's another part of the warning. He will also take your daughters to be confectionaries. Now, don't think of that as cupcake bakers <laughs> or something. <laughs> that actually, I don't know if anybody has any notes in their Bible. Anybody know what a confectionary is according to the King James? Yeah. It's, it's ladies that make perfumes. So don't think cupcakes, okay? Totally different from what we think there. And basically what he's going to describe next are those, he's going to need young ladies and young people to attend to his court and, and help him. And he's, of course, a king. He's not going to do all this himself. He's going to get other people to do it. So, um, which would be nice, you know, for, think of being the queen and other people are making all those perfumes for you, I guess. I don't know. And to be cooks and to be bakers. No, we did get a cupcake maker in there somewhere. And 14, and he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the best of what you have. There's a thing called taxes, people, that you're going to become familiar with in a very close way if you want a king. He will take a tenth of your seed, your grain, and of your vineyards. Yeah, and give to his officers and to his servants because he has to keep the army happy and his own staff happy. And he will take your men servants, your servants, your female servants, and your goodliest or the best of your young men. Your men in the prime of their life will go to help your king and your donkeys. And we're going to see in the next part of the narrative here 
those that have donkeys were considered, that was considered a part of someone's wealth. If you had donkeys, oxen, servants, you were considered to be wealthy. And the king's going to take all those and he's going to put them to work. We can kind of relate to some of these things, can't we? And uh, so we would say along with Samuel, don't do it. Let God rule you. Let the judges rule you. You don't want a king. And he will take a tenth of your sheep or your basically the word here has the idea generally of flocks and you shall be his servants. And that word really means slaves. You will not be your own anymore, but you will be um, your existence will center around your king. And when you get what you want, verse 18, you'll find out it really wasn't as good as what you thought it would be. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which you shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not answer or hear you in that day. Now they have an option here. They have a choice. With all that, they could still say, you know what, Samuel? Uh, life's pretty good under you and under God directly. We'll just, we'll just go with that. They even have the warning that if they get what they want and they choose that, there's no going back. God's not going to relent. They're going to get the full force of what they want. And folks, sometimes when God makes it clear and we pray about something and God makes it clear that he isn't going to give it to us at this time or that it's not best for us and we continue to um, rumble and complain, sometimes God does, I could say the word relent and give us what we want to show us. And, and that can be a greater form of punishment than not having it at all. Sometimes when we get what we want, it's a reminder, wow, this wasn't all I thought it was going to be. I should have listened to God. And so God uses these things as tests as well. Um, so that's a pretty persuasive argument. Did the people listen? Well, unfortunately, verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nay or no. Telling your authority no is never a good pattern. And we will have a king over us. Very stubborn here, right? That we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, there is some concern here about the Philistines again, as we see in this narrative. And I thought the Philistines had been weakened and weren't a problem. It's hard to know really. The Bible doesn't really describe in detail why they're so concerned about the Philistines again. It may be that they're just not trusting in God, and so they're anxious about something that they don't need to be anxious about yet. But I think most likely the Philistines have strengthened in their power again, and God has allowed that. Even though they've been weak and they haven't been a problem for years during Samuel's ministry, I think God has allowed it now because he knows their hearts are turning from him. So he's ramping up the opposition with the Philistines. And instead of turning to God, they're saying, give us a king. So he could fight these Philistines, get them out of our hair. And Samuel then takes, they re stubbornly refuse the warnings. Samuel takes their final decision to the Lord for final approval. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed or repeated them in the ears of the Lord. That doesn't mean that God didn't know beforehand. He was kind of waiting over, you know, on the other side of the field saying, come on, Samuel, let's go. What's the answer? He knew but this was all to show the people, remind the people that God had to give ultimate stamp of approval on this. So Samuel went to God, got his approval. 
God already knew their decision. He had to give the final approval and God granted them their request. The Lord said to Samuel, obey, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. And now they must wait for God to choose their king. Um, there's that old adage, right? Be careful what you wish for. Oh, they're about ready to get it. And now they must wait for God to choose their king. We have a few more minutes here, so let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 9. And now the narrative, the scene changes dramatically as a good storyteller, a good story will do. We're introduced to a brand new narrative that seems far removed from the last scene. We could almost call this, as we continue through this, a day in the life of a wealthy Benjamite farmer. It's totally removed from what we've just seen. And the narrator does this to kind of catch us off guard. We'll see how this all ties in. Now, we're left. Israel's waiting breathlessly for God to choose a king. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to verse, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Bacharoth, the son of Aphiel, a Benjamite. Okay, go, go through the whole lineage there. This was somebody that was, and it's referred to here as a mighty man of power, or really that would be wealth. This man named Kish is really described in terms um, that Boaz is described in the book of Ruth. And really this narrative kind of starts out that way. It's almost like we're back in the, the same sort of situation as the book of Ruth starts out. An agricultural community, you have a worthy man who is wealthy, it does say that he's a Benjamite. That's one negative already. If you remember, for those that have been studying the book of Judges, the Benjamite tribe was morally troubled. And some of the things that they were involved with in the book of Judges just make us shake our heads. So that is one aspect of this. When we hear this, we might think, well, that's not so good. But he's a mighty man of power. He's well known. He's honorable. That's good. And he had a son whose name was Saul. And notice how they choose, the narrator chooses to describe him, a choice young man and a goodly. That means he's really good looking. He's handsome. This is kind of like your Prince Charming, you know, kind of situation. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier or handsomer man, person, than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher or taller than any of the people. And by the way, this is interesting. We might make this a side note. If there were a group of people that were looking for maybe a king, this guy would be a pretty good choice, right? Good looking, tall. He's got all the, the worldly aspects of, of things that they would look for. Of course, the author doesn't say anything about that yet. He's very mysterious in this. They just keep it to the narrative. Again, this is a day in the life of a Benjamite farmer. Why? Because verse three, and the donkeys of Kish Saul's father were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, now take now one of the servants with thee, arise, go seek the donkeys. Goes to Saul, Saul, bad news. Donkeys got out again. Saul's like, oh, okay, dad, I'll get, get the servant. We'll go look for the donkeys. Again, to point this out, if you had donkeys, and it also shows that later that Kish, obviously he had servants, he had oxen, he's a wealthy man. So Saul gets his servant, and verse 4, he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, 
but they found them not. And then they passed through the land of Shalom, and they were not there. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, and they found them not. And so this is probably about three days. It's getting frustrating. You know, oh, those donkeys, man, I hope they didn't crush mom's vegetable garden like they did last year. And this is just all normal, kind of a, a nice little hometown story, frustrating about the donkeys being lost and whatever. They finally, they were come to the land of Zuf. And Saul said to his servant that was with him, come and let us return. Lest my father leave caring for the donkeys and take thought for us. It's been three days. Dad's going to be awful worried about us, even more than the donkeys. But the servant has one more idea, because they just happened, and this is interesting, um, that as they continue, this continues to read at this point, kind of like Esther does, there's all of these coincidences that just kind of happen. And we're supposed to be drawn into the fact that there's that, that these coincidences can't just all just happen, that just be coincidental. Um, but there, there must be something else going on here. But just coincidentally, Saul's servant says, behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. Now, we don't know who the man is. And all that he saith, saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go there, and perhaps he can show us our way that we should go. Saul, we just happen to be in the area where there's a man of God, that what he says always comes true because he's that close to God. Maybe we ought to talk to him. And here's the interesting thing. What does Saul respond? Then Saul said to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? Here it's striking. And this tells us something about Saul that we might miss. Here is a man of God, and we're not told who it is yet, that obviously even his servant knows about, that is well known around the area, around the nation, as one who has God's ear, that, that knows things that are going on, and Saul is totally clueless about who this person is. And not only that, he doesn't even know how to interact with them. He thinks this is some sort of, okay, well, if this is a man of God, like what you're saying, do we have to pay him? Because... I don't have any money. Do you have any money? You know, he has, he, he's really, he's coming across early on in this description as someone that is clueless about the things of God and God's people. And when we find out who the man of God is, it's going to even be a little more dramatic. How did Saul not know about him? It, it paints a picture here of Saul being comfortable as a wealthy young man and really kind of clueless about the things of God. But they just happened, the servant just happened to have some extra money. And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, look at this. I have here in hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver that I will give to the man of God to tell us our way. Now it gives us a little background here. The author says, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, and come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Okay, just giving us a little bit of information that the men of God used to be called a seer, and now they're called prophets. It gives us an idea about maybe when this was written. Uh, we don't know for sure. But let's continue on. Then said Saul to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill to the city, they found young maidens, young women going out to draw water and said unto them, is the seer, is the prophet here? And they answered them and said, he, he is. Well, isn't that coincidental? 
we happen to come upon the town where the man of God lives, and he just happens to be here. And behold, he is before you. Make haste, hurry now, for he has come today to the city, for there is a sacrifice to the people today in the high place. And this man of God, it seems as if this is his hometown, and he has made this hometown, he's made a place for the people to worship, probably in lieu of the fact that Shiloh's been destroyed, right? So he's made Rama here, kind of giving away who it is, um, the place where they would sacrifice. And as soon as ye be come into the city, ye shall straightway find him. Behold, before he go up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he come. Because he doth bless the sacrifice, and afterwards they eat that be bidden or were invited. So it, we, it's, our, it's our custom to respect this man of God in our town, and we always wait for him to basically bless the food, bless the sacrifice. And then we sacrifice and we eat together. It kind of reminds me of our church in Maryland where we, had, we joked around, but there was kind of this unspoken tradition that the past senior pastor before any potluck dinners had to come down from the service and we had to wait for him. And when he got there, then he would pray for the food. And some people would always say, well, we know we have a second pastor. Pastor Brock's usually here before him. Why don't we have him pray for the food? It's like, no, you got to have the pastor pray for the food, the senior pastor. So anyway, that was what was going on here, this man of God. Now they say, now therefore get you up. And about this time, get going immediately, you'll find him. And they went up into the city. And when they were come up into the city, what, what a coincidence. The man of God is Samuel, and Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Is all of this coincidental? No. God's directing all the seemingly normal mundane events of life for his purposes. We find that out in the next verse, and we'll get into this next week, but we find out that narrator kind of secretly pulls us aside and says, by the way, this is still that story continuing about Israel and the king and all of that. And God had already told Samuel that Saul was coming, but don't tell anybody. Okay, we'll get into that next week. Folks, can we go through life, the normalities of life, and the normal frustrations of life, and miss the fact that God is directing all of it? We can. And here is a reminder, first of all, that when God told his people he would give them a king, he would, and he directed every aspect. The seemingly normal, the, the events, daily events in the life of a Benjamite shepherd or a farmer, God's in control of all of that. And God's in control of the events of a conquered computer programmer and a Hopkinton pastor and a Henniker farmer and the normal frustrations. Don't we tend to get frustrated? Oh, I can't believe I did that again. And we forget to see God working in all of these things in our lives. When God allows frustrating things to happen, like losing donkeys, he's got a purpose for that. And we have to remember that. We see God's sovereign hand. As we finish up tonight, we're reminded when we're frustrated, go to God like Samuel did. Expect that frustrating things are going to happen. Go to God. He's got a plan for this but submit to it. Don't demand your own way and have something uh, idolatrize or have something in idolatry in your heart that pushes you to disobey God. But submit to him, submit to his plan, and he will prove himself faithful, just like he did here.